0: Well, Blake, where in the world did you get all these people, man? It's like the super band for the super study, huh? That wasn't bad, huh? That was, uh, yeah, you pulled them all out from the lighthouse, right? So uh, anyway, I appreciate that. It was good to see all you guys up there worshiping the Lord and, and serving us tonight. So thanks so much. And want to welcome you guys to uh, the first super study of the summer. And uh, this is always something that we look forward to every summer just to kind of uh, go out of the normal routine and, and uh, all come together, children, students, and, uh, and, and adults, and uh, all pack in here for our uh, six-week series on something special, something unique. And uh, so we're hoping that you're going to be able to hang in here for the next uh, six weeks. Uh, I guess we'll take one break in the middle uh, on the week the kids go to camp. That's July fourth week. Uh, we'll be off that Wednesday, but so we have I think three weeks before then, and then three weeks after that. And uh, we have uh, decided to dedicate our summer super study to studying Psalm twenty three. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me uh, this evening. Even though some of you probably don't need to turn in your Bibles because you have it memorized, uh, a very familiar passage of scripture and tonight we're going to embark on what is arguably the most well-known and most loved and most often quoted passage in the entire Bible Psalm 23 and let's go ahead and read it um, as I begin Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we come before you tonight as we embark on this study of this very familiar passage in your word, and Lord, I come before you very needy, Uh, Lord, I'm overwhelmed uh, to think about trying to explain and apply this powerful, this beautiful, this precious portion of your word that is truly beyond my comprehension and even beyond my experience. And I confess that to you. I want this to be my experience. And I trust that all of us would want this to be our experience. And so, Lord, as we take the time this summer to Uh, think deeply, maybe more deeply about this psalm than we've ever thought before in our lives, that you would open up our minds to understand, our eyes to see, our emotions to feel, and Lord, to also our will to do, to put into practice the things that we see in this passage. And I just ask that you would be glorified and honored as the great shepherd of our soul. And we know ultimately that the only reason we can have a relationship with you is through Jesus Christ, who is depicted here in the psalm as well. And I pray we wouldn't miss him as we consider each one of these verses a week at a time, that Lord Christ would be lifted up. And as he's lifted up, he would all, draw all men to himself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for several years now, I've been contemplating um, teaching a series on Psalm 23. Uh, Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the pearl of the Psalms, and he, along with other gifted preachers and and authors throughout church history, have sought to expound uh, and illuminate the deep riches of this familiar psalm. One author has written this about the 23rd Psalm. He said, from the moment it was penned 3,000 years ago, the 23rd Psalm has been the world's best known and most beloved psalm. It's been engraved in the hearts of every generation, from antiquity to modernity. It's been quoted across the centuries and through the millennia. Its words have blessed millions of sick rooms and thousands of classrooms. It's been quoted in hospitals, jails, homes, and churches, in open-air rallies and underground meetings, in seasons of peace and in times of war. It's been whispered by the bedsides of sleepy children and spoken as the last words of dying convicts. It's the most memorized and memorialized passage in the Bible. Now, some of you may automatically assume if that is true, and it is, then there really is no need for anyone to preach or write anything else about Psalm 23 since everyone is already so familiar with it. However, I would submit to you that the fact that people are so familiar with Psalm 23 is the very reason why I think it requires a special series, because it's possible to be so familiar with something that you take it for granted, and you lose sight of how wonderful or how, how helpful it really is, or worse, familiarity can lead to a false impression that we truly understand or appreciate something when we really don't. I'm sure we've all seen the Mona Lisa, maybe not in the Louvre in Paris, right? We've seen it on the internet or seen it in a, in, a, in a textbook, but we've all seen the Mona Lisa, which is considered to be the most famous painting of all time. And we're so familiar with it that we could easily look at it quickly and superficially, really at a glance, a quick glance, and miss So many of the subtle beauties and the details that da Vinci wanted us to notice and appreciate when he painted it in its original. And I think in the same way, it's possible for those of us who have read and prayed and memorized and quoted Psalm 23 for for most of our lives to miss the beautiful truths that David wanted us to notice and appreciate when he originally wrote it. I agree with Robertson McQuilkin, who uh, was the longtime president of Columbia Bible College, now Columbia University. He said this in his little commentary on Psalm 23. He said, the 23rd Psalm is the best known chapter in the Bible and the least understood. It is the best loved chapter of the Bible and the least believed. Another author has said this, Peter Jeffrey, a British pastor, He said, the psalm, Psalm 23, is the prayer of many Christians, but it is the experience of very few. So how do we make this our experience? We must certainly get beyond merely admiring the beauty of these words of David. There is no doubt that these are magnificent words that flow with an exquisite beauty, but what about the reality of them? The poetic beauty may do something for some cultural or aesthetic need that we have, But it does nothing for our soul. An ungodly man can be taken up with the beauty of the psalm, but our privilege as Christians is to experience the reality of the truth expressed here. What God was to David, he wants to be to all his people. We have to realize that the close fellowship with God described in this psalm is possible for us. And so I think we need to ask ourselves some questions as we begin our study of Psalm 23? Are we actually experiencing the intimate, all-satisfying relationship with God that David describes here in Psalm 23? Are you experiencing that? Intimate, all-satisfying relationship with God? Am I experiencing that? Do, Do we really believe that God is who David said he is And that he can do what David said he can do in your life, in our life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is who David says he is? And that he can do what David said he can do? You may know Psalm 23 by heart. But my question tonight is, do you know the God of Psalm 23 as your personal shepherd? You may know it by heart. You may know this Psalm by heart. But do you truly know the God of Psalm 23 as your personal shepherd? There's a story that's often uh, told about the 23rd Psalm. You may have heard this story. It goes like this. One day at a large party, a famous actor was asked to recite the 23rd Psalm. The actor said he would as long as the old pastor, who was also present, would recite it as well. The pastor agreed, and so the actor began to recite Psalm 23. His voice was magnificent. The people were mesmerized by how eloquently he spoke. When the actor finished, the people broke out in wild applause, and then the old pastor rose to his feet. He began to recite the psalm. His voice trembled. At times he paused as if to think of the wonders of the psalm. The Lord seemed to speak through him to the people, and when he finished, no one clapped. Most of the audience was in tears. Many sat with bowed heads. The actor rose to his feet again and laying his hand on the shoulder of that old pastor, he said, My friends, I spoke to your ears and to your eyes, but this man spoke to your hearts. The difference between us is this I know the psalm, but this man knows the shepherd. Makes all the difference in the world, does it not? We all know this psalm. The question is, do we know? The shepherd. And so, my goal in preaching this series on Psalm 23 is to help you know this psalm better, but more importantly, to help you know your shepherd better. And my prayer is that God will use these six messages, one for every verse here in Psalm 23, to help all of us develop a, a deeper, more intimate relationship with God, and that Psalm 23 would truly become a reality in our lives and serve as a foundation. For our entire relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, why did you mention Jesus Christ? I thought he's in the New Testament. We're talking about the Old Testament here. Well, I think it's important that we understand that the whole Old Testament points to who? To Jesus Christ. And if we miss Jesus in Psalm 23, we've missed the whole point of Psalm 23. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, typically when you start to look at a, a verse or verses in scripture, it, the best place to start is is to look at its context. And one of the most basic principles of what's called hermeneutics, which is simply the the how to interpret the scriptures, the, the meaning of a verse or verses in the Bible, that's what we call hermeneutics. It's the 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 the, the, the act of interpretation. Okay, one of the most basic principles of hermeneutics is to look at what comes immediately before a verse or verses and what comes immediately after that verse or verses. And that's not something you typically do when you come to a psalm because oftentimes uh, psalms do kind of stand on their own. But not in this case. Psalm 23 isn't just floating around in the Old Testament. It needs to be understood in this context and and that it's connected to what comes immediately before it and what comes immediately after it. Psalm 23 is flanked by Psalm 22 and Psalm 24, which form a trilogy that the Spirit of God inspired David to write as prophecies of the coming Messiah. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are referred to as Messianic Psalms. In other words, they, they, they uh, prophesy of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 tells of the Good Shepherd who died on the cross. John chapter 10, verse 11, is a familiar passage to us. John chapter 10, verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd. This is Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And in Psalm 22, we don't have time to look at it. It's a a lengthy psalm, Psalm 22, but uh, you can verify this maybe later tonight or tomorrow morning in your quiet time. But in, in Psalm 22, David predicted the traumatic events that Jesus experienced During his crucifixion, including the very words that Jesus would speak while hanging on the cross. It's as if the psalmist, as if David was standing at the foot of the cross a thousand years in advance, right? And and painting the scene like an artist or describing the action like a journalist, even though the event was still a thousand years away. And so that's Psalm 22, the good shepherd who died on the cross. Now, Psalm twenty-four tells of the chief shepherd who is coming again. The chief shepherd who's coming again. And in first Peter chapter five, verse four, Peter says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And this is of course a reference to Jesus Christ and his second coming when those who serve as his under-shepherds will receive a reward for their service. And so David, in Psalm 24, predicted the glorious second coming of Christ to the holy city of Jerusalem, where he will be enthroned as the everlasting Lord of hosts. And so that's Psalm 22, and that's Psalm 24. And then Psalm 23 tells of the great shepherd who tends his flock with untiring devotion in the here and now. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his work to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever, Amen. And so, here in, in Psalm twenty three, David described how the crucified, Psalm twenty two, and risen and glorified, Psalm twenty four, Jesus Christ would care for the present, ongoing needs of His sheep, those for whom He laid down His life and for whom He will return someday. And so these psalms all fit together. The three psalms have been referred to as the psalm of the cross, Psalm 22, the psalm of the crook, the pastor's crook, or the the shepherd's crook, uh, Psalm 23, and the psalm of the crown, Psalm 24. Uh, one, One author says it this way, the Savior's cross takes care of yesterday, the shepherd's crook takes care of today, and the sovereign's crown takes care of tomorrow. And we know the scriptures teaches that Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, right? And forever. And so Psalm 23 is all about what Jesus is doing in the lives of his followers today. Right now, in between his first coming when he died and, and his second coming when he'll return to get us. Again, another author says this, these three chapters, Psalm 22, 23, 24, present the whole story of the gospel of God's grace and answer our three greatest questions. What about my past, my present, and my future? Therein lay all our worries, for every problem is either behind us, around us, or before us. Hence, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24, God's triad of truth to deal with life Whatever tense we're in. And we just happen to be in the present tense. And David wanted us to know that no matter what we experience in the present tense, in the here and now, between the first and second coming of Christ, God will take care of us just like a shepherd takes care of a sheep. And Psalm 23, as we'll see, directly addresses the entire spectrum of human experience, I mean, everything you could possibly experience in life during your lifetime is is touched on or mentioned here in Psalm 23. It includes the joys of life, the fears of life, the sorrows of life, and that's why Psalm 23, if you've noticed, sounds equally appropriate whether it's read at a wedding or a funeral. Have you noticed that? Psalm 23 is oftentimes read at, at weddings, It's a beautiful poem to read at a wedding. It's also a a, a beautiful poem to read at a funeral. Why? Well, because it practically applies to every believer, both young and old, to baby Christians and seasoned saints alike, for those of you who are maybe taking your first steps in following the shepherd as as your Lord and Savior, to those who have been walking with the Lord for many years. It equally applies. It's like what someone had said about Scripture, and Psalm 23 is a microcosm of Scripture in that it's, 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 not, um, it's so deep that uh, the best theologians uh, have never plumbed the depths of it yet, and yet the, the newest believer, the baby Christians, can't drown in it. It's a beautiful blend of, of simplicity and depth. And really what, what is happening here in Psalm 23, this is David's personal testimony of how God had faithfully cared for him through all the ups and downs of his life, which he described um, as, as a shepherd's devotion, provision and protection for one of the sheep in his flock. That's how he described his life, as, as God was taking care of him. He was a devoted shepherd who provided for him and protected him. Him like he was uh, one of the sheep in his flock. Notice the, the, the title in Psalm 23. You should probably have in your Bibles a little tagline at the very beginning that says, A Psalm of David. And the way that it's put in the English Bibles, in our Bibles, it looks like maybe it was just added as a title, but that was actually, that phrase, A Psalm of David, is actually in the original Hebrew. So it's really part of the first verse, if you will. And I think this is important that we look at this just for a moment. It says, a psalm of David. A psalm, we know, is a song. A song to be sung. So Psalm 23 isn't a prayer, but it's a psalm. And uh, I think this is important because sometimes this psalm is maybe used as a prayer of desperation for what we may need or what we may want. David was not crying out for anything he needed or wanted from God. He was simply praising God for what he already had, what God had already given him. He was not asking God to do these things for him, but he was thanking God that he already is his shepherd. He was already doing these things. And so he's simply delighting in the fact that he was the object of God's tender care. I don't know if we got our title slide up there. I chose that word, that first word of a subtitle there very strategically, uh, that this is not really anything but delighting in. This is what this psalm is all about. It's about delighting in the great shepherd of our soul. Delighting, just just merely delighting in him. Not doing anything. Do you get that? Not doing anything other than delighting in, in the great shepherd of our soul. But at the same time, as we're going to see, there's also uh, a sense of him depending on, on the great shepherd of his soul, right? It was more than just delighting in, he was depending on the great shepherd of our soul. And so I think that title really captures the essence of Psalm 23, that there's a delighting and there's a depending going on simultaneously here. But delighting must come first. Now, different commentators give different reasons why they think David wrote this either at the beginning of his life or the end of his life. I think it's, it, it seems most likely that David wrote this at the end of his life. I don't think that this, uh, that David was inspired to write this song while he was lying on his back in a pasture somewhere, you know, tending his family's sheep as a young teenager. It could have been, right? Because we know that's what he was as a young teenager. He was a shepherd boy, but I think it's more likely that he wrote this later in life, maybe sitting in his throne room or in his study as he, as he looked back over his life, as he contemplated his life, after he'd carried many burdens, as after he had fought many battles. And uh, we don't have time to give a a lengthy biographical sketch of David other than just simply to say that we know that David was a man of great faith, but he was also a man of great failure, was he not? I mean, he was filled with the same kind of conflicting passions and bewildering problems as we have. I mean, this man after God's own heart, right, slew the giant Goliath. He was a faithful friend to Jonathan. He was a gifted musician. He was an able ruler At the same time, he was a fugitive. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He had to actually watch uh, one of his uh, children die just a few days or weeks old. He even had to deal with a rebellious son uh, who who rebelled against him in in his later years and actually had one of his generals kill his son. And so... All that to say, David experienced just about anything you could think of. Anything you've gone through, and more. That's David. And I think the reason why we, we love the Psalms is because we can relate to the Psalms, can't we? The 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 the, the emotions that are there, the, the thoughts that are there, the struggles that are there, the emotions that are there. Especially whenever the Psalms talk about sin, right? We can definitely relate. With that, And so here's David, I think, at the end of his life, looking back over God's care for him. F.B. Meyer, who was a contemporary of, of D.L. Moody back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, he was a, a preacher in England. And he's written a little book called The Shepherd Psalm. And it's just, uh, I felt like just getting up here and reading it to you. It was just so beautiful and powerful, the way he just articulated so many neat truths. Um. So, you're probably going to hear me quote from him a lot in this series, but listen to what he said about the timing of this, of the writing of this song. He said, This, there is a strength, a maturity, a depth which are not wholly compatible with tender youth, and seem rather to betoken the touch of a man who, amid the many varied experiences of human life, has fully tested the shepherd graces of the Lord of whom he sings. David the king did not forget David the shepherd boy, he composed this psalm in which the mature experience of his manhood blends with the vivid memory of a boyhood spent among the sheep. I think it's well said, right? That, that yes, David was older in life. He was now as the king, but he never forgot his days as a shepherd boy. And this psalm kind of blends those things together. And so as David looked back over his life, he was exalting the trustworthiness of his God, and in so doing, I believe he was wanting to build our trust in God to be for us what he had been for him. And so we're going to have our trust challenged as we go through Psalm 23, that we do need to understand that while there is a delighting in the great shepherd of our soul, there's also a depending on the great shepherd of our soul. And I think David was wanting to inspire us and encourage us and and motivate us and really exemplify what it means to depend on the great shepherd of our soul. Again, Peter Jeffrey says this, the psalm is meant to show us the greatness of God and the greatness of our privilege as the people of God. If you're a Christian, you are the most blessed of all people. You may have plenty of problems. David did, but the Lord is your shepherd, and that outweighs everything else. And so here is a psalm of David, and this isn't how he begins. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord. That word, Lord, is a very important word. It's the word Jehovah in the Hebrew which was the great personal name for God that was first disclosed to Moses at the burning bush, right, in Exodus chapter 3, when uh, Moses asked uh, God, okay, you want me to go tell Pharaoh to let your people go? Uh, when when the, he asked me who sent me, what is, what is your name, the God of the Israelites? And what did he say? Tell them I am sent you, which was a Kind of uh, an interesting name, right? I am. I am who? You are what? The point was, he is. That was his name, the Jehovah God. And this I am uh, was repeated more than 4,000 times in the pages of the Old Testament. And in Hebrew, it comes from the the root word to be, um, and it literally means I am who I am. And it really just highlights the character and attributes of God, namely that that he is timeless, that he's self-existent, he was uncreated, um, he's self-sufficient, he needs no one or nothing, uh, and he's unchanging. And so this was the ultimate name of God in the Old Testament. There was no greater name that David could have used uh, to address God. And in fact, the Jews were almost mystical about this name, this name Jehovah, Yahweh. And they would, they would whenever they came to it in, uh, in public reading of the scriptures, they would substitute a lesser name for God because they didn't want to pronounce the word Yahweh. They, they felt that would be uh, you know, uh, dishonoring to God. And so they, they wanted to reverence the name of Yahweh. In fact, it was only uttered that the word Yahweh was only one, uttered once a year on the great day of atonement by the high priest in the most holy place. And you may remember me saying this before. But when copying the scriptures, the scribes, whenever they came to Yahweh in the text, they would put the pen down, and they would get up and they'd go take a bath. They put on a new set of clothes and they would get a fresh quill. Uh, and they would write the name Yahweh. That's how serious they were. And again, they, they were very mystical. Well, David was, was, was far more practical than he was mystical, uh, and his point was simply this. Who better to care for me than the great God of the universe? And someone has said this. The staggering fact remains that Christ the creator of such an enormous universe of overwhelming magnitude deigns to call himself my shepherd and invites me to consider myself his sheep, his special object of affection and attention. Who better could care for me? What's more, sheep can't care for themselves. They require more attention and more meticulous care than any other class of livestock. Um, There's no other animal that God created that is more like us than sheep. Sheep are dirty, they're defenseless, they're directionless, they're undiscerning, they're dumb. And they're prone to sickness, they're prone to stray, and they're easy prey. And yet the great God of the universe has stooped down to take care of you and me like a shepherd cares for Sheep. Notice he says, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, anybody who read this in David's day, right, the Israelites, there was an instant connect, right? Oh, yeah, we get that. Because every day, they woke up and they went outside and they saw shepherds. They saw sheep, right? That's just their culture, their agricultural community and culture. But, so they were all familiar with this. It was just an integral part of their agrarian society in which they lived. But to us, a shepherd tending a flock of sheep is really kind of an antiquated image belonging to some quaint rural village in New Zealand, right? I just was there, and I saw these quaint hillsides dotted with sheep. And those of us who are unfamiliar with subjects like livestock and crops and fruit and wildlife, we can miss much of the truth taught in God's Word I was reminded of this uh, just uh, several months ago. I had breakfast with one of our elders, um, Tyler Jacobs, and we were sitting at Montgomery Steakhouse, and uh, we were talking about cows. And I just asked him some questions about cows, and he started to really confuse me because he started talking about cows and heifers and steers, and and um, and and there was another uh, bulls, yeah, bulls and. And, and so, what? Well, time out, time out. And then, and then cattle, cattle, he threw cattle in there. I was like, well, wait a minute. Whenever I drove by a field of cows, I would always say, look at all those cows. Now you're telling me that's not true. He says, no, you need to call those cattle. And, and, and then he went to tell me, you know, when they're, when they're first born, they're, they're cows. But then when they have a baby, right? no. Yeah, okay, so my point's exactly, okay, you get, you get my point. I'm like, Tyler, you're hurting my head, man. You, you just complicated my life, okay? What's a steer? What's a heifer? You know, what's a bull? And they change somewhere in the middle of it all. And I'm like, okay, whatever, dude. But it was a theology of cows. It was very interesting. Listen, it'd be a lot easier for us to understand if it said, Psalm 23, the Lord is my accountant. Or the Lord is my mechanic. The Lord is my coach. The Lord is my teacher, right? These are things that we relate to. Um, It'd be easier for us to understand. But listen, there is no other profession that more accurately depicts our relationship with God than that of a shepherd caring for sheep. And and I think we need to understand this, that in ancient cultures, a shepherd was considered the lowliest of all uh, positions or professions, um, that's why it was so amazing that, that the first people that God announced the birth of his son were some shepherds watching their sheep by night, right? Um, God was making a point there. And so this was the, like, this was the bottom of the rung, okay? This is, this is, you didn't want to be a shepherd. I mean, if a family needed someone to watch the, the sheep, the duty would fall to Who? The youngest son, right? That's, what, that, that's where David was, right? When, when Samuel came to anoint the next king, right? And, and all the other sons of Jethro were there in the house, but David was out t- taking care of the flock. Yeah, Jesse, thank you. And so David had the unpleasant task of living with the sheep 24 hours a day. Task of caring for them uh, was unending uh, because a shepherd was responsible to lead the sheep, feed the sheep. Uh, comfort the sheep, guard the sheep, protect the sheep, rescue the sheep, minister to the sheep, fix their wounds, um, rescue them. Uh, And this was a day and night, summer and winter, fair weather, bad weather type of thing. And the survival of the flock of sheep ultimately depended on the shepherd doing his job. And if the shepherd didn't do his job, the sheep would not survive. And so liking God to a, a shepherd... Here again was a, was a far more intimate metaphor than a king. He, he said, He could have said, The Lord is my king, or the Lord is my deliverer, or the Lord is my mighty warrior, right? Those all sound pretty good, or the Lord is my rock, my shield, right? He says that in other places, but that's very impersonal. And so, he chose really the most intimate relationship that he could think of, right? The relationship between a shepherd and sheep. And granted, David was a shepherd, right? We know that. 1 Samuel 16, 17, talk about that. But I don't think he used this imagery for God simply because he was a shepherd. In other words, he didn't didn't think this up on his own, this metaphor for God. Like, oh, you know what? I I think, you know, if I was going to compare God to anything, I'd compare him to a shepherd, no, David didn't come up with this metaphor, this, this, this word picture. God came up with this himself. And from earliest times in Scripture, the Lord had revealed himself to his people using the picture of a shepherd. This was a divinely ordained title. Don't just think that this is kind of a cute, sweet, kind of a sappy little, oh, David was a shepherd and so he called the Lord a shepherd. He, he was really ultimately borrowing the title that God had given himself. Um, we don't have time to look at all the verses. Uh, Genesis 48, 15. Jacob, uh, maybe we'll just look at that one because that's the first one, first time it's mentioned. But this is where this whole concept is introduced by Jacob in, in, in Genesis chapter 48, verse 15. Jacob blessed Joseph. This was before he died. And said, "The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my what shepherd all my life to this day." It's mentioned again in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Genesis forty nine twenty four. Um, Moses mentioned, or called, or referred to God as Israel's shepherd. Deuteronomy chapter thirty two. Um. This is not the only psalm that talks about God as the shepherds. Psalm 28, verse 9. Save your people and bless your inheritance. By, be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Multiple times in the psalms, he refers to God as the shepherd. How about this one? This is probably a familiar one. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. Come, let us kneel. Excuse me. Come come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And Psalm 100, verse 3 is another familiar. Know the Lord Himself as God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We know Isaiah, right? Isaiah 53 talks about. Uh, the sheep and the shepherd, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, talking about uh, Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But then turn, turn to Ezekiel, because this is probably where this, this um, analogy of, of God being a shepherd, it really comes to a crescendo. Ezekiel chapter 34, and God is rebuking the, quote-unquote, shepherds of Israel, those prophets and those those leaders who were supposed to be leading the people spiritually. And notice um, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 6. Well, let's just start in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. God is not happy because he entrusted the care of his flock, right, the nation of Israel to these leaders, and they let them wander off. They're all over the place spiritually. And he goes on in verse seven, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord as I live surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has become even food for all the beasts of the field for a lack of a shepherd and my shepherds did not search for my flock but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. So basically, he says, I'm going I'm to step in and I'm going to take over. I'm going to take back my job. Behold, myself, I myself, verse 11, will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he's among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And that goes down to verse 16. But then notice, jump down to verse 23. Well, look, look at verse 20, 22. Therefore, I will deliver my flock and they will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. Then check this out. Verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So in contrast to the bad shepherds, Right? God stepped in and said, I'm going to take back my role as the shepherd, the chief shepherd, and I'm going to pull the nation of Israel back together again, and then I'm going to set over them one shepherd. You guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. I don't trust you, right? You failed. So I'm going to appoint one shepherd, my servant David. And he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, is he talking about David, David? Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the son of David, right? His heir, the the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so in contrast, again, to these bad shepherds, one day God promised to send the good shepherd. Not just a good shepherd, right, but the good shepherd. And so Jesus Christ is that perfect shepherd that God promised to raise up to care for his people, who he would lay his life down for. And let me just read for you some passages in the New Testament just to show you how Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of that prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 5, they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, and by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Talking about Jesus Christ. Um, How about Matthew chapter 9, verse 36? This was Jesus' heart, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like what? Sheep without a... Shepherd. And then, of course, you've got John chapter 10. I've already read that. Um, we don't have time to read it in its entirety, but that whole section uh, is, is the parable of the good shepherd, verses 1 uh, all the way to, to verse 17. And um, Jesus just uh, takes on the whole analogy and applies the whole analogy of the shepherd to himself. Basically, I am the, the shepherd that, that Jesus talked about. And again, 1 Peter 5, 4, we already looked at that, the great shepherd, right? Um, I read it earlier, 1 Peter chapter 5, it's talking about Jesus. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Hebrews 13, 20, uh, already read that. But again, another reference to, to Jesus Christ. Now the God of peace who brought us from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, and we see in Zechariah 13, 7, this is an interesting verse, if you can find it. Zechariah, right? It's kind of in the sticky pages of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter uh, 13, verse 7, listen to what it says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Guess who quoted that before he died? Jesus. That was a reference to him being uh, crucified. So, all that to say, we're back in Psalm 23, that ultimately the shepherd here is fulfilled or, or foreshadowed and fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ. Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. Let's not miss that little word there, my. My shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. You didn't use personal pronouns a whole lot uh, in the Old Testament. Whenever you talked about God, it was always our. The Lord is our shepherd. No, David said, The Lord is my shepherd. And notice all the personal pronouns here the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in grieve pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, my enemies, right? You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will Will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Listen, all that to say, not everyone can come to Psalm 23 to find peace, comfort, and hope in life. This psalm only applies to those who are his sheep, not goats. Right? There's sheep and goats in this world. This, This doesn't apply to goats, this applies to sheep. The only, the only people who can say the Lord is my shepherd are those who God has made, who God has made his sheep through his divine love and electing grace. I don't have time to read it, but there was a, one commentator that was very helpful in, in talking about the doctrine of election here, in, even in Psalm 23, that when, when uh, no sheep picks what flock they're in, you don't go to the market, right? And the, the shepherd doesn't walk through the marketplace and wait for the sheep to go, meh, meh, right? And call out, like, he wants to be in my flock. Oh, I'll pick you then, because you're, you're calling out to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick. No, he says, I want you, and I want you, and I want you, and I want you, right? The shepherd chooses his sheep. And so in order for God to be your shepherd, Christ must be your savior. You say, how do I know? How how do I know if Christ is my Savior? How do I know if this psalm applies to me and I can actually apply it to myself? Well, John chapter 10, in this whole context of Jesus being the good shepherd, he says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How do you know if you're one of Christ's sheep? Well, you hear his voice and you Follow him. You do what he says. You obey. Not perfectly, right? I don't obey perfectly. But he's saying, listen, the general pattern of your life is you hear the voice of your shepherd, right? You know his voice. And, I, and, and he says, I know you because you follow me. It's obvious that you're one of my sheep because you follow me. You're not just out there wandering around doing your own thing and I have to come out and get you all the time and I have to beat you into submission, right, to to, to obey. No, you you follow me. That's how you know if you're one of Christ's sheep. Again, Robertson McQuilkin says this, if the orphan cry of anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, had never been uttered by the Son of God, then the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, never could have been uttered by any man. Do you get that? The first step toward enjoying the provision of the psalm of life is to receive eternal life through faith in the crucified risen Savior. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ set forth in Psalm 22 that make possible for us the Christian life set forth in the 23rd Psalm. So again, we have to see all this in connection, right? So only a Christian can delight In the fact that the Lord is my shepherd. Well, there's one more phrase here in verse one. And we'll look at this and be done. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not, what? Want. Based on who God is, right? This eternal Self-existent, self-sufficient, unchanging God of the universe, right? I shall not want. I mean, what, what could I possibly lack having Jehovah God as my shepherd? God will meet our physical and spiritual needs in this life and the life to come. No material or spiritual need will go unmet. There's no possible situation in which we'll be in need. I mean, how could we possibly lack anything if the infinite God of the universe is responsible for our needs? The Lord will never let us down, in other words. Listen to a couple other uh, verses that have confirmed this. Psalm 34, 8 and 9. Love this. O taste and see that the Lord is, what? Good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no, what? Want. If you fear the Lord, there's no want. How about Psalm 73, verse 25? Asaph said, Whom have I in heaven but you, God, and on earth I desire what? Nothing. What more do I need? I've got you. And then I love Psalm 84. Psalm 84, verse 11 For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Listen, you're not missing out on anything. God's not holding out on you, holding back anything from you. If you are walking uprightly, if you're honoring him, right, and you're like, but there's this this, this, this thing I really wish he would give me. I really want this. Well, then guess what? Either you're not walking uprightly, right, that's why he's not giving it to you, or you are walking uprightly and he knows it's not good for you. It wouldn't be good for you. And so we can draw great comfort from that. But notice it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not wish. Does it say that in your Bible? I shall not wish? There's a lot of things we wish for, right? Right? That we, you know, want, God's not saying here that we're going to have everything that we ever wanted. uh, That life is full of roses, no difficulties, no problems, no heartaches. We're not always going to have the best job, the biggest house, the nicest car. But you will have everything you, what? Need. You'll have everything you need. You can have the confidence that you will never go without Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as well. The whole context there is about worrying and fretting about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear and where you're going to live. Do you realize that worrying, which is, by the way, the opposite of depending, right? Not trusting. What's the opposite of, uh, of, of not trusting? It's worrying. And so worrying is sin, It's the sin of not trusting God. And whenever we worry or, worse, complain, we're failing to trust God. In fact, we're insulting God. I'll never forget on our refrigerator growing up, my mom kept this little index card with this little handwritten quote. And uh, whenever we complained, usually at the dinner table about something we were having to eat, right, and we start to complain and uh, my mom would snap her fingers. We'd have to jump up out of the chair and go over to the refrigerator and stand there and read this little quote, which basically said, the first, I just remember the first line. I don't remember what the rest of it said. All I remember is it says, complaining is an insult to God. I don't know how many times I had to read that thing, but it's burned into my psyches because I had to stand in front of that refrigerator countless times reading it out loud so my mom could hear it, right? Complaining is an insult to God. So what's the key here? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think the issue here is what? Contentment. There's contentment here. Like Paul said in Philippians chapter four, he had learned to be content, right? In whatever circumstances he found himself. Why? Because he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. And he said, my God shall supply all your wishes, all your wants, now all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Someone wrote this. Contentment should be the hallmark of the man or woman who has put his or, his or her affairs in the hands of God. That should be the hallmark of a Christian. Christian and contentment go together. And so we should be able to pray like the Puritan who sat down to a meal of bread and water and bowed his head and say, all this and Jesus too. What a precious prayer, right? All this, which wasn't a much, right? But he was content and Jesus too. Some of the reason why this is not our experience The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It was David's experience. Why isn't it our experience? Because we've got the grass is greener syndrome, don't we? We're not content. We're we're always looking around at the other guy's field, right? The other person's field, what they're enjoying, right? And, uh, And so we never enjoy what God has provided us. And uh, if you haven't started yet, I want to encourage you to, to, to start reading the book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. How many of you guys got the book? Okay, so good. A lot, a lot of you have. They're available in the Resource Center. Two bucks. Come on, guys. It doesn't look like this, by the way. This is like an old copy. Um, but it uh, got a new, fresh-looking cover. Make sure you pick up a copy before you leave tonight, just two bucks, and start reading it because it's going to be a great supplement to our study. But I, I just came across this when I was reading it, and if you've read it... Already through uh, chapter um, 2, you'll remember this. But this is uh, Philip Keller, who used to be a, a, a shepherd uh, in East Africa. And so he's writing from the, his own experience as a shepherd. And he's, he's giving um, practical insights on Psalm 23. And so this is what he says. He says, um, he talks about this, this beautiful sheep that he used to have. the the most beautiful sheep he owned. He said, but in spite of all these attractive attributes, she had one pronounced fault. She was restless, discontented, a fence crawler. So much so that I came to call her Mrs. Gadabout. This one you produced more problems for me than almost all the rest of the flock combined. No matter what field or pasture the sheep were in, she would search all along the fences or shoreline we lived by the sea, looking for a loophole she could crawl through and start to feed on the other side. It was not that she lacked pasturage. My fields were my joy and delight. No sheep in the district had better grazing. With Mrs. Gadabout, it was an ingrained habit. She was simply never contented with things as they were. Often when she had forced her way through some such spot in defense or found a way around the end of the wire at low tide on the beaches, she would end up feeding on bare, brown, burned up pasturage of most inferior sort. So even she got out, what she found was not as good as what she had, Right? But she never learned her lesson and continued to fence crawl time after time. Now, it would have been bad enough if she was the only one who did this. It was a sufficient problem to find her and bring her back. But the further point was that she taught her lambs the same tricks. They simply followed her example and soon were as skilled at escaping as their mother. Even worse, however, was the example she set for the other sheep. In a short time, she began to lead others through the same holes and over the same dangerous paths down by the sea. After putting up with her perverseness for a summer, I finally came to the conclusion that to save the rest of the flock from becoming unsettled, she would have to go. I could not allow one obstinate, discontented you to ruin the whole ranch operation. It was a difficult decision to make, for I loved her in the same way I loved the rest. Her strength and beauty and alertness were a delight to the eye, but one morning I took the killing knife in hand and butchered her. Her career of fence crawling was cut short. It was the only solution to the dilemma, she was a sheep who, in spite of all that I had done to give her the very best care, still wanted something else. Man, could that not be said of God, right? Of us. God could say that about us, right? After all he's done to give us the very best care, we still want something else. May God help us to be content. Max Lucado, I think, says it well. He says, what you have in your shepherd is greater than what you don't have in life. What you have in your shepherd is greater than what you don't have in life. In Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness, right? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. I think that's fair. Well, there's so much more we could say, but let me just say this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The entire rest of the psalm is a commentary on that first statement. So, okay, if the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want what? And he goes on and he describes what he doesn't lack or want. And really, this entire psalm um, stands on this single line. This is it right here. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We could close in prayer tonight and be done studying Psalm 23. Because this is where it all begins and ends. And, and again, let me just say this. And I think this is important for us to note in light of how we're growing and learning as a church, that this entire psalm is about what God does for us, not what we do for him. Do you catch that? This is not about going out of here and working harder, right, to be more of what God wants us to be. This is who God is. This is delighting in who God is. And again, F.B. Meyer, and I'll close with this, said that Psalm 23 is an oasis in the desert. It's a rest stop on, an, on a hill of arduous climbing. It's a Grotto in a Scorching Noon. It's a sequestered arbor for calm and heavenly meditation. It is one of the most holy places in the temple of scripture. He says, Come hither, weary ones, restless ones, heavy laden ones, sit down in this cool and calm resort while the music, its rhythm charms away the thoughts that break your peace. How safe and blessed are you to whom the Lord is Shepherd. Repeat again in holy reverie the well-known words to the end and see if they do not build themselves into a refuge on which the storms may break in vain. O trembling heart, look away and look up. Your sorrows have been multiplied indeed, but looking at difficulties, excuse me, your, your, your sorrows have been multiplied indeed by looking at difficulties. Now cease from all this talk, Talk no more about the walled cities and giants, about the rugged paths and dark valleys, about lions and robbers, but think of the love, the might, and the wisdom of the shepherd, love that spared not its blood, might that made the worlds, wisdom that named the stars. Your salvation does not depend on what you are, but on what he is. For every look itself, take ten looks at Christ. Tell us no more of your tears, your failures, or your sins, but tell us, O tell us, of the all-sufficiency of Jesus, and how your needs have been the foil of his deliverances. Sing again the song of how all wants are swallowed up in the shepherd love of God. Father, we thank you that you are such an all-satisfying shepherd who always cares for us and provides for our needs. Father, forgive us for so often being dissatisfied and discontent after all you've done for us, all after all you've cared for us and provided for us that we're still not satisfied. And Lord, that's just evidence that we don't get it. That we're looking to find satisfaction in something other than you. And so we thank you for Christ and uh, for how he is truly all-sufficient for us. In him we have everything we could possibly uh, want or ever need, and I pray that we'd find him sufficient, Lord, in our practical daily experience, when we're tempted by sin, that we'd remember that we don't need that, we don't need to give in to that, because we have Christ. And maybe when we lack other things that we really wish we had that would make life maybe a little easier for us, that we would remember we have Christ, and that's really all that matters. And so make this our experience, Father, and that we would truly be able to say from our hearts that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.